With Halloween this weekend, I wanted to share with you a spooky story that has everything. Murder, a creepy graveyard, and a very courageous young woman. For those of you who are fans of the podcast My Favorite Murder, you might recall host Karen Kilgare for gailing audiences with this tale. It still makes the hairs rise up on my arms. At the end of the day, though, this scary story is about one thing and one thing only. A young girl's incredible resilience. This is the story of Jennifer Holiday. The year was May 29, 2005. Kelly Clarkson was crushing the charts with Since You've Been Gone and Behind These Hazel Eyes. Classics. Uh, what else is happening? George W. Bush was president. I would have been in grade six. It was a year of karaoke and crushes. Um, but we're not here to talk about me. We are here to talk about two young Texans. So, Jennifer Holiday was driving her 17-year-old cousin, Anna Franklin, home after a night out together. They stopped at a local gas station for snacks, um, and when they were coming back out to leave, a man named Eric Parnell stopped them. He hit on Anna, and she turned down his advances gently. He followed them to the vehicle, at which point Anna turned around and was like, Hey dude, back off. I said no. Eric stormed off, and the girls drove away. Ladies. We've all been there, right? I feel like getting hit on at a gas station is some sort of morbid rite of passage for young girls. Um, one time, a guy came up to me at the Superstore gas station, and he was trying to sell, like, Superstore credit cards. And so I said, no thanks, I'm not interested. Um, but instead of walking away, he was like, yeah, yeah, cool, yeah, no worries. Uh, so what grade are you in? Like, I really like your dress, what's your name? It was so awkward because, like, I was literally in the middle of filling up for gas, so he had me cornered. Um, I don't know if he thought he was being flattering or what, but it was just so awkward. He asked me for my number, and I was just like, I don't have a phone. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I ended up just not filling up my tank all the way and being like, okay, bye. <laughs> um, it was just so inappropriate. We're not even safe from men at a freaking Superstore gas station on a Thursday afternoon. Ugh, this is just the worst. So back to our story. Jennifer and Anna head down Highway 69, just north of Lufkin, Texas. It's really dark outside. There's no lights on the side of the road because they're out in the country. They're chatting, laughing, just enjoying a beautiful evening together when all of a sudden there is a loud bang. Jennifer says that sound was the loudest, most shocking noise she'd ever heard. All of a sudden, there was glass and blood everywhere. They had no idea what happened, so Jennifer swerved over to the side of the road and put the vehicle in park. Now, if you've ever been injured, there's that brief moment where it's like your body's in shock and you don't feel anything, and you're trying to figure out, like, okay, did I get hurt? Like, there's blood. What's happening? So Jennifer's brain is trying to catch up with what's just happened. She's looking around, not knowing what's going on. And that's when Anna just starts screaming. So she's pointing to Jennifer's arm. And when she looks down, she realizes she's been shot. Her arm has been severed right above the elbow and is only barely hanging on. Uh, that would have been it for me. I would have been 100% passed out 
deceased. I like really romanticized the idea in my head of being a nurse when I was in high school. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to help others. I'm going to go volunteer for the Red Cross at a military hospital and just pat the sweat off the brow of wounded soldiers. Uh, but I hate the sight of blood. I could have never done that. I can barely be in a hospital. I It just makes me woozy. So yeah, I would have been done. Um, but Jennifer, thank the Lord, is an EMT. So she has crisis training. She's used to seeing horrific scenes. This is someone who's literally scraped dead bodies off of the pavement after a roadway accident. So the training kicks in, and in that moment, it saves her. So Jennifer said in a really calm voice, Anna, please take your phone out of your purse and call 911. I'll be fine. Just don't look at my arm. I need you to call an ambulance. Anna, I need you to take your phone and call 911. As Anna was scrambling to take out her phone, a man who'd been driving next to them and pulled over when they did gets out of his truck. So he walks up to the driver's window and asks if they're okay, which, I mean, obviously they aren't. What a dumb question. The man is Eric Parnell, the guy who hit on Anna at the gas station. So she recognizes him and instantly connects the dots. He followed them, and he's the one who just shot at their car. He's responsible for hurting Jennifer. So Eric clocks Anna putting together the pieces. So he reaches past the driver, um, past Jennifer. He rips the phone out of Anna's hand, and he chucks it into the bushes. Anna loses it. She starts screaming at him, and that's when he pulls out a pistol and takes a shot. Jennifer recalls watching the bullet kind of whiz past her face as if she was in like a slow motion movie, and she also remembers the sound it made as it hit Anna's skull. Anna was killed instantly. Eric proceeded to open the driver door and pull Jennifer out. He dragged her to his truck and threw her inside as she cried out in pain. Remember, her arm is dangling, nearly shot off, and her cousin has just been murdered. She begged him to let her stay with Anna, swore she wouldn't tell anyone who he was, but he had other plans. So he speeds away, taking Jennifer further and further away from any semblance of civilization. Now, it's really important to remember that this is not a busy highway to begin with, and also it's like two in the morning. Eric eventually pulled over and ripped Jennifer out of the truck. He dragged her into the woods off the side of the road and proceeded to rape her. He made her strip naked and he tortured her by burning her with the end of a cigarette. Here's the deal. One in three women will experience sexual violence in their lifetime. So while Jennifer's story is horrifying and unique in its circumstance, the experience of being sexually assaulted isn't one in a million. How in 2020 is that stat still one in frickin' three? That's chilling, and it's one of the reasons why I will always be a passionate advocate for women and a very proud feminist. We may have come a long way, but if one in three women are still facing sexual violence, we have a long way to go in making sure people understand the value of women and the autonomy of their bodies. When I first heard Jennifer's story, it made me think of the women in my life who've experienced sexual violence, and I know a handful. It really made me reevaluate my own experiences, um, and it was a reminder that this stuff still happens and that we really need to look out for each other. So I can't imagine how horrifying Jennifer's experience in the woods was, even more so when, after Eric finished, he sat down next to her and began weeping. That's right. 
After being assaulted by this murderer, Jennifer had to watch him cry like a little baby. She recalls laying there completely naked, covered in her own blood, like to the point where pine needles were sticking to her. They were sticking to the blood, being like, what is going on? So he was crying, totally collapsing in on himself, and all of a sudden he looks over at her and goes, oh my god, you're bleeding. What happened to you? Let's take a moment to absorb that. He maliciously shot her, raped her, burned her. He looked her in the eyes as he violated her body in every possible way, and now he's staring at her dumbly, wondering what happened to her. So then he started laughing like a little kid, all bashful at her naked body, like, oh, what are you doing? Put some clothes on. This is the moment Jennifer realized that this man was either on drugs or dealing with some serious mental health problems, and she needed to come up with a plan to get out of there. Um, This would just be horrifying. On one hand, if you're dealing with someone this unstable, there's a chance you can maybe more easily manipulate them into keeping you alive or letting you go. I mean, clearly all his faculties aren't there, so there's a chance she could use that to her advantage. On the other hand, you don't know when they're going to snap back. So Jennifer says she decided right then and there that she was going to do whatever it took to survive. She would either make it out alive or she would make the process of killing her as difficult and painful for him as possible. Now, deciding that you're going to survive is powerful. To speak to that is my incredible mom. Here's what she had to say. This is such a fascinating topic for me because when I was training as a victim advocate, part of our class that we had to attend was a self-defense class. And it was amazing. It was a full day and we learned all the different moves of how to get out uh, of a situation. So whether you were grabbed from the front, the back, um, you were thrown to the ground or pinned to the ground, how you would actually fight back and escape. And that was the whole point of the course. It's not to fight someone to a bloody pulp. It's to fight long enough that you can get out and then you run and you leave that area as soon as possible. And so the whole day was so interesting. We did all these exercises. We were paired off with a classmate and we would practice breaking free of different holds. But the part that really struck me was the padded attacker part. And that was where we all stood in a big circle around a a gym mat and there was a guy there, he was all padded up and he was the padded attacker. And if you wanted to, you could walk up on the mat and then he would just randomly grab you from the front, the side, or throw you down to the ground and try and pin you. And the point of it is you were to fight back and use all the things that we had learned. And so not everybody wanted to do it. And I just honestly, I did not have the courage to do it because I was finding myself just kind of stuck on the side going, I think I'm, I'm freezing. I'm, I'm literally freezing because you either fight, you flight, you run, or you freeze. There's three things that happen when you're in a traumatic um, situation we all respond differently. And so I realized, oh my goodness, I am freezing watching this happen. So my classmates, you know, are deciding to to go for it. So they walk on the mat and the guy then takes takes them down or, or throws whatever move. And the instructor said before we started, 
Whenever your classmates get on the mat, as soon as that attacker attacks that person, I want everybody to yell, fight, 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 and encourage them. We got to, you know, really cheer them on and tell, tell that person to, you know, fight harder, kick him in the head, you know, elbow him in the neck, whatever you need to do. And so as different ones went on the mat, all of us are yelling, you know, fight, fight, fight. And it was just this massive sound. And I found myself looking at this and feeling, oh my goodness, I'm having an emotional response to this. And I didn't have the courage to go on the mat because I realized I have not made a decision that I will actually physically fight someone. And so it took me days, you know, after the class, um, going back to work, driving back and forth, this kept rolling around inside of me. And I kept thinking, oh my goodness, I, I have to make a decision. And all of a sudden, one day, boom, it just happened. This, this thing just rose up in me. And I'm like, you know what, I am totally going to fight. And if anybody ever tries to attack me or lays a finger on me, I will kick their butt and get away. And I've, I've made this decision and marking it today, right? And it just changed something inside of me. And there's such a power in that decision. And I see it all the time um, in supporting victims and families and witnesses to horrific tra traumatic events and crimes that they've um, been victimized. And so it's such a powerful thing to make that decision that yes, I will fight. And we all need to make that decision. About a year or so ago, we were having dinner with friends out at a mall. And um, there happened to be a drive-by shooting just outside the mall entrance. And we were, see we were in a restaurant really close by. And what ended up happening is I was facing the hallway with my husband as we were having dinner and saw a bunch of guys run in screaming. And I could hear words like, shoot, you know, there's a gun, run. And just this big big commotion. And so I, I nudged Perry and I said, did you hear that? And he's like, what? And I, so I explained it and then he could see the commotion. So I said, let's, let's go check it out. So we stood up with our friends and started to approach the front door of the restaurant to see what was going on. And so we all did different things. My friend got on the phone, called 911 because nobody had called 911. She talked to the, the manager and he was just standing there in a stupor. So she called 911. And then I said to him, you've got a door here, lock the door, pull the shutters and lock it so nobody can get inside. And he looked at me and said, well, I can't do that. I can't hold people against their will. And I said, are you crazy? Shut the bloody door. There's a shooter. Meanwhile, the guy who got shot is now sitting at the bar and people are holding claws, including my husband, against his back from the gun wound. It was just this crazy scene. And, you know, looking back, there were people who, a couple people who hid under the table, totally terrified. Another family with a baby had run into the kitchen. So they were back there. But the majority of people sat at their, at their um, tables eating food like nothing was going on. It was just this crazy scene unfolding. And we were all either acting or not doing anything. So that whole fight, flight, where you're running or you're freezing, I mean, we were getting every reaction in that restaurant. And I just think it speaks to how important it is to think through these 
horrific possibilities. I mean, obviously, you don't want to sit there and think of the worst case scenario. But honestly, you need to, you need to think it through enough that you make a decision that you will fight, and you will take action, and you will survive, and you'll get out alive. So Jennifer decided in that moment, she was going to do whatever it took to survive. So she took a note from Dolly Parton, who weaponized her sexuality and started moving in close and batting her eyelashes at Eric and saying, just in the sweetest little Texan accent she could, thank you so much for saving me. You're so kind. You're my hero. And he fell for it. She disassociated what he just did and her injuries from him by saying, thank you so much for saving me from that man. You're so sweet. Can I please please stay with you. Can you please take me to your place so that I can get a band-aid? He ate it up. So he helped her to his car. And remember, she's completely naked and covered in blood. And he's like, yeah, I saved you. I'm so glad I got to you in time. He's just crazy. He's so out of it. Honestly, thank God. Um, later, he would say he was drunk and on Xanax at the time. Crazy combo, apparently. So as they were driving back to his place, Jennifer's thinking about what she's going to do. So she's thinking like, at least if they're back in civilization, she can run to a neighbor's for help, or maybe he'll have a phone at his house she can call the police with. Um, it would be undoubtedly still scary and anxiety inducing, but at least they're out of the woods. Like, Phase one of the plant, successful. So as the reflection of the town lights in the clouds kind of appear up ahead, Eric started getting more nervous. So he was saying to her, like, don't be like the bad people. Don't do anything stupid. Don't tell me I didn't do this to you. I helped you. And she instantly squashed his fears and was like, no, 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 of course not. I'm so thankful for you. You saved me. You're my hero. So she told him she loved him and he just totally for it. She said whatever she had to do in order to keep him driving on track. So Jennifer can see the lights up ahead, but all of a sudden he turns off the main road and through the gates of a cemetery. A cemetery, you guys, a freaking cemetery. Um, in Karen Kilgariff's storytelling of this on the My Favorite Murder podcast, she was like, if this was a pitch for a show, I would be like, this is all incredible, this is wild, but take out the graveyard part. That's too insane. Like, that would never happen. And it is. It's crazy. But down the hill of graves, there's this little trailer, his home sweet home. This is a horror story. This is a legitimate, real horror story that ends in a graveyard of all places. So this details why I wanted this to be our Halloween episode, because good freaking lord, if this isn't a scary movie waiting to happen, I don't know, like Hollywood, get on it. So inside the trailer, Eric can't find bandages. And really, what's like, what's a little band-aid gonna do? Her arm is hanging on by a literal tendon. She's lost so much blood. Her body's experienced just incredible physical trauma. She needs a paramedic, not an idiot in a graveyard trailer. So she explains that all very nicely to him. I'm sure she edited herself quite significantly. Um, she explains it all as gently as she can, um, continuing to exalt his character and his kindness. And then he goes, yeah, you're right. Should we call an ambulance? So he hands her his phone and he actually lets her call 911. What a fool. What a total idiot. What a gift. Honestly, this story is so 
wild. Jennifer's plan is working. She is crushing it. And I, I'm so impressed because I can't imagine the trauma. Like, think about what she's been through so far. She's had this great night out with her cousin. She's watched her cousin get murdered. She's been raped in the woods. And this fool is going to let her call 911. He's handing her salvation on a platter. He's such an idiot. Thank God. Um, okay, so I personally hate listening to 911 calls, especially when it comes to true crime cases. I think it just makes like the story of it a little too real, um, which is probably a good thing because these are real stories and we shouldn't glamorize them or like, you know, I think some true crime can get kind of icky because it's like, okay, well, now you're just capitalizing off someone's death. So good for you. Um, but also so many times it's the bad guy on the phone and they're lying to the operator or that, um, the weepy voiced killer. Oh, that one's so creepy. So they're just so chilling to listen to. I don't want to mess with it. So I'm not going to play Jennifer's 911 call here, but she deserves an Oscar for the performance she put on. I did listen to it. It was just wild like she did such an amazing job so the operator connected and set the standard like 911 was your emergency and jennifer replied in this sweet innocent voice hi i've been shot in the arm and i'm hurt real bad i need an ambulance to come out here and help me but i'm with this man and he's so sweet he saved me he's my hero but i'm hurt real bad i really need medical care but he's just so kind but we need some help now imagine being the operator she was like I'm sorry, did you just say you were shot? And Jennifer responds all cheerful, Yes, ma'am, and this nice man is right here, and he's helping me, but I'm hurt really bad, but he's such a sweetheart, but my arm is in really bad shape. So after a couple exchanges back and forth, the operator did that song in her head that the nun used to do in the show Madeline, and she goes like, Something is not correct. I feel like anytime I make that reference, people are like, what are you talking about? So if you know what I'm talking about, please message me so that we can um, just go back down memory lane of sweet little Madeline from Paris. So she goes, something is not correct. Like there's something going on here that's more than just what I'm hearing. And she does this because just before the call, she'd overheard a coworker mentioning a shooting. Someone had come across the scene of Anna in the car. Um, and it was clear that the driver was missing, but had likely been injured. So they know something has happened. They have a missing person likely injured. And now Jennifer is calling in claiming to be shot. So the operator goes, did you say a shooting? And Jennifer responded, yes, yep, yep, yep. And he's here right now. He's helping me. So she really sells it. She's just really cheerful and like kind of chill too. Karen in My Favorite Murder, again, she remarks how she did that thing when you put your tone of voice um, in a way that doesn't match what you're saying, which is always so off-putting. So the operator knew this was a red flag. Something is very, very wrong. She suspected the man with Jennifer had caused her injuries or had something to do with it. Um, and obviously Jennifer was in immediate danger. So she didn't pry because that could ruin Jennifer's whole charade and put her in jeopardy. But instead, the operator went along with everything and began the dispatch of police and an ambulance. However, they couldn't pinpoint the address that Jennifer was calling from. Probably because they were in a friggin' graveyard. So... I like to imagine Eric as like Jack Skellington from Nightmare Before Christmas, like his creepy second cousin dancing around the graveyard in his ginch late at night. Like, 
what is he doing? It's just so wild. I know I keep saying that, but what is happening? So they can't find the address. And at this point, Jennifer's starting to panic a little. Like she's so, so, so close to being rescued. And now they can't find her. So then Eric out of nowhere is like, pass me the phone. I can give them the address. No problem. So she gives him the phone and he gives them the address. You guys, this is the worst murderer in history. What? What? Okay. I just talked through that whole page. I need to just hang on. Where are we? Oh, okay. So he picks up the phone. He gives 911 directions and he's like, you guys better get here quickly. She's lost a lot of blood. Like, I'm so glad I helped her, but no police car, just an ambulance. And the operator stays so calm, so sweet. She went, of course, just an ambulance. We just want to make sure our friend's arm is okay. Thank you so much for taking care of her. You're such a sweetheart. As they're waiting for the ambulance, Erica's like, here, do you want like a shirt and shorts? Like you're naked. So Jennifer recalls him being confused as to why she was naked again and even warning her that, like, she should dress better or men might try to take advantage of her. Like, just such a true a-hole. So the moment Jennifer saw the lights of the ambulance reflecting inside the trailer, she was just overwhelmed with anxiety. She was so close to getting help and also dangerously close to passing out from blood loss. Like, remember, she's an EMT, so she knows how bad her injuries are. Like, she knows this is really, really bad. So she did her best to walk calmly to the door. Eric even helped her outside and down a couple steps. The ambulance had to park at the top of the hill because for some reason they couldn't get all the way down. So Jennifer began, like, a death march with her attacker following her step for step as if he's some chivalrous man escorting her home at the end of the night. So she remembers stepping over tombstones and just how much pain she was in. The whole thing must have just been so surreal. She also recalls seeing the trees swaying, which she thought was because she'd lost so much blood and her vision was starting to go. But in reality, it was a freaking SWAT team getting into place. So the moment Jennifer stepped out of their range and Eric stepped into their range, they jumped out of the trees, tackled him to the ground. He fought back a little bit. He got like a black eye and some bruises from struggling. Poor baby. Give me a break. Jennifer's fellow paramedics rushed out of the ambulance to her side and through it all, she survived. Y'all, she did it. I'm so proud of you, Jennifer. It's incredible. It was so interesting. I was watching her episode from the show I Survived, which is where I got a lot of this information from. And she's telling the whole thing. And through it all, I'm like, oh my gosh, she's not getting out of this alive. There is no way. Like, he's going to snap out of it. She's going to lose. Like, this isn't going to end well. And then I had to literally remind myself, the show is called I Survived. So she clearly survived. So, but... She's just also an incredible storyteller. So she survives. She survives. So Eric Parnell, scumbag. He was charged with two life sentences for capital murder 
aggravated assault and kidnapping. At the sentencing, Jennifer courageously took the floor to give her victim impact statement. She purposefully wore a short sleeve shirt so everyone would see the scars covering her arm. Um, and at the time, she still had over 30 shotgun pellets lodged in her arms and chest. Most of those would never come out because it was just too risky to do surgery to get them. So here's some of what she had to say. She said this, You've taken something that I will never have back, Anna. All I can think about every time I think of her is how you left her. My son said he's mad at you that you took away his sweet Anna from him. God will give me peace one day. I know he will. There's no sense to what you did. None. You're going to spend eternity in hell for what you did. I know that. <laughs> so good. So Eric Parnell waived his right to appeal in order to get a lesser sentence um, and won't be up for parole until the year 2041, at which point I'm going to freaking Lufkin, Texas and arguing that he should rot in jail till he dies. That's just my humble opinion, but I think most of you will agree with me. He can rot. I mean, I hope he changes his life and finds Jesus and blah, 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 but he can still rock. Jennifer obviously suffered serious physical injuries. And because healthcare in the United States sucks, it took two years before she was able to get an affordable surgery. She would have been covered by her workplace insurance, but she lost her job because the injury prevented her from being able to work as an EMT. In 2007, the Chronicle wrote, Dr. Kyle Dixon removed two steel plates and 19 pins in Holiday's left arm Thursday during a surgery that lasted three hours and 40 minutes. He then made a surgical correction to Holiday's elbow to restore a range of movement. So the nerve damage can't be reversed, and so Jennifer won't be able to meet the physical requirements to work as an EMT ever again. But at the time of her surgery, she was really hopeful that she would find a new career that she loved. When she was discharged from the hospital following the incident, she remarked how she was just excited to hold her son in her arms again and hopefully live a life that would make Anna proud. And that is the story of Jennifer Holliday. Sources for today's episode are the Texas Chronicle, the Lefkin Daily News, episode 51, A Bit of Oblivion by My Favorite Murder, television show I Survived, and as always, a sprinkling of Wikipedia. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of Scarlet Letter Woman, the podcast about incredible women throughout history. Make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast and follow along on Instagram at Scarlet Letter Woman. And have a great rest of your day. Bye.